Hello, everyone. Good afternoon, um, London time. Good morning, good evening, where you may be. Welcome to this event with Professor Ian Golding, an event hosted by the School of Public Policy at the London School of Economics. We are very, very pleased and very, very lucky to be welcoming Professor Golden, uh, who's going to be presenting his new book. I've got it right here in my hands. The book is entitled Rescue from Global Crisis to a Better World. Um, Ian Golding really does not need a lot of uh, introduction, but let me just remind you that he's a professor of globalization and development at the uh, University of Oxford. He was the uh, founder, the founding director of the Oxford Martin School, where he's been associated with a lot of programs, uh, all of which are very well known, but the one that sticks in my mind is a program associated with the future of work, a very big issue indeed that I'm sure Ian will be telling us more about. So welcome Ian, welcome everybody. Uh, clearly talking about how we go from just responding to the pandemic to building better policies, better institutions and a better world using what we have learned in this crisis. You know, I, I cannot think of a more timely or a more important topic. And we have, you know, one of the world's great experts on the subject to, um, to enlighten us and to tell us, you know, in what direction we should be taking our thinking. So this is how we're going to do it, um, as is more or less uh, a tradition by now at the School of Public Policy. We're going to ask that our guest speak for maybe 10 or 15 minutes. Um, if you want to make it 15, Ian, it is not a problem at all. Uh, the point here is simply to get the main ideas of the book across. Then I will use my chair's privilege, ask a couple of questions, you know, Three, uh, if I get enthusiastic, which I'm sure I will be, given the contents of the book, and then we will open it uh, to a Q&A with the audience. Please, you know, um, if just simply upload your questions in the, uh, in the uh, Q&A portion of the screen, and I will do my best to read out and share with Ian as many questions as time will allow. So without further ado, Rescue from Global Crisis to a Better World. Ian, the floor is yours. And again, thank you for joining us. Thanks very much, uh, Professor Velasco Andres, and the School of Public Policy and LSE Public Events for hosting this event. Um, I'm an alum of LSE, and it's always a pleasure to, to reconnect and with the many great people and professors there. Why I wrote this book and what it's about is how we can learn from this crisis. All of us, and I'm sure all the participants, uh, have been badly affected by it. Uh, many people have died and will continue to die. But if out of this terrible crisis, we can learn uh, to create a better world, if out of this terrible crisis, we are able to not just build back better, or reset, or bounce forward, or bounce back, but do things differently, then all the suffering might not have been in vain. And it's that ambition which drives the book and, and uh, compelled me to, to work on it. There's a lot of talk about bouncing back better. But for me, 
that's very worrying because we're on such shaky foundations. If we go back to what we were before, back to the old normal, to business as usual, we are hardwired to carry on down a road which will lead us over a precipice. Escalating climate change, more pandemics, growing inequality, increasingly unstable, complex global system. And that's why even a word like reset, which some use, worries me. Because when we reset our computers, we go back to the operating system that was pre preset in it. We need to do things fundamentally differently. And if we're not going to make this decision now, I believe we would have lost a historic opportunity. For me, I've lived through momentous events in my life, the fall of Berlin Wall, the end of apartheid in my home, South Africa, many other things. This is an absolute catalytic moment. There might not be another moment like this, certainly in my life that arises, where this opportunity for change and this acceleration of learning is occurring. It's occurring on multiple dimensions, but it's important to recognize that this pandemic was inevitable. I've been writing about it since I wrote a book, The Butterfly Defect, Why Globalization Creates Systemic Risks and What to Do About It. And others have too that know about pandemics. And that's because as we live in a more and more complex, interdependent world, we need to understand that very, very bad things travel around these vectors of globalization, as well as great things. I'm a huge believer in globalization. It's brought more progress to more people more quickly than any force in history. And by globalization, I mean flows across national borders of goods, of services, of products, of people, of finance, but most of all of ideas. And we're seeing that still today, whether it's the Me Too movement or the Black Lives Matter movement and a growing awareness of the impact of climate change, improvements in life expectancy, the creation of a vaccine so quickly and it's spread around the world. These are all also aspects of globalization. But so too, of course, is the pandemic. So too, of course, are cascading financial crises. So too are the fake news that spread and tell us many bad things. And what we need to really get to grips with is that while we want to harvest the positive aspects of these flows, unless we manage the negatives, they will overwhelm the positives. Airport hubs inevitably will lead to be super spreaders of pandemics. Financial centers inevitably will spread cascading financial shocks. Our cyber connectivity, which allows us to have this webinar, also will spread cyber viruses. And so we need to manage these and also the unintended consequences of the goods. It's wonderful that so many people are climbing the energy curve for the first time, getting electricity, 2 billion people over the last 30 years. That's progress. At the same time, it's led to an escalation in greenhouse gas emissions and climate change. If we all take antibiotics, that's wonderful. But if too many people take them, none of them are effective. We need, as we become wealthier, as we impact on others, as we engage with each other, to increasingly recognize that what we do as individuals has an impact on others, has an impact on the planetary ecosystem. What we do matters. And the rise of individualism, the rise of a self-guided model 
particularly since the Thatcher-Reagan revolution of the mid-70s, has led to attention with our capacity to manage the planet. We're going to move ahead, either through increasing individualization, nations and individuals in growing conflict and tension, or in my view, through a more harmonized world, a world of greater cooperation, where we move from I to we, from them to us. And that's the question we face. Are we prepared to live up to this? Now, many would say, I'm a dreamer. Many would say that this is impractical. But what the book talks about is the historical experiences where this has happened, and particularly the experience of the Second World War, which, of course, led to fundamental changes within countries, the creation of welfare state in Europe, but also internationally, the United Nations systems, Bretton Woods, Marshall Plan, the system we have today that did stop another war. Are we capable of this? Is it just the leaders that we're lucky or unlucky to have, like the Roosevelts and Churchills of that time? And what that experience also tells us is no. Leaders in business, leaders in society, make a fundamental difference to the outcome. Churchill, who was the absolute war hero, was deposed within six weeks of the end of the war by a relative unknown, Clem Attlee, because Churchill was not prepared to commit to the improvements that society wanted. The book covers many, many different aspects of how the pandemic will shape our lives. I consider the impact on growing inequality, not only within countries, by geographic region, but also internationally. It's been a development disaster. The SDGs have been thrown off course, but also within our countries between generations. The sacrifices the young have made for the old, I believe, need to be repaid by the prospect of a better future for them. The book covers the future of work as well, a topic which is, as Andreas said, a theme that I've, a group of postdocs with me is researching in Oxford. And there, although it looks like we're moving towards a more hybrid future, I consider various different dimensions of it. First, of course, many workers, essential workers and others, don't have the choice of working hybrid, and we need to care particularly about them. And then there's all the implications of hybrid work for young people, for people entering jobs, and for the jobs and the firms themselves. Most jobs are apprenticeships, whether it's academia, whether it's law, whether it's finance, whether it's medicine, journalism. There are very few jobs where we don't learn through observation, where we don't learn by being with people. Can we do that on Zoom? Can you do that remotely? And what are the implications for existing hierarchies and networks and newcomers? Is there challenge to organization? which is so vital? And what is the impact on productivity and innovation and creativity of being remote? I have views on that. And then, of course, it implicates the future of offices, the future of property prices, the future of cities. Can cities be sustainable without the great cities, without this hub of offices? And what are the implications for the ecosystems of cities? And that forms another chapter. I consider the implications for climate change and ecological systems and whether we really are seeing this wonderful recalibration. We need to remember, as I stress, that after the financial crisis, the stimulus packages led to a massive increase in greenhouse gas emissions. If stimulus is spent on cement, on steel, which a lot of stimulus is, particularly that focused on infrastructure, of course, it has very negative implications. But it can be spent on a Green New Deal, which will create jobs. How that will be done, 
matters extremely. And then the key question is that of can we stop future crises? Is this the crisis to end all crises? And by learning to stop pandemics, can we learn to stop other crises like that of climate and in other dimensions as well? My view is that this is entirely possible. That there's nothing endogenous in the system to say you can't manage it. Crises are endogenous. Crises come out of the system of globalization, but so do does the management, the potential. And we've seen that in different areas. That I believe is possible. Pandemics are the greatest challenge we face because unlike all the other challenges, whether it's climate change, antibiotic resistance, and many, many others, a small group of countries, of cities, of companies account for most of the problem. And you can apply what economists call the Pareto principle. Use 20% of the actors to get 80%. But that does not apply with pandemics. Pandemics are the extreme case. They are the case where the risk can come from the poorest person in the poorest village on earth or the richest lab in the richest country. And so we are in this together. We're experiencing it together and we won't overcome it until we overcome it together. And so what the book does is look at what that does for our understanding of global governance of politics. What can we learn from the very differential impact of the pandemic in different countries? Why have some countries done well and others badly? What do we take away from that? And my hope by drawing on the lessons of the pandemic, and clearly it's still ongoing, so we'll continue to learn lessons. But we've learned enough already, in my view, to be able to have this wake up call, this moment of reflection and to do things differently. And if we don't do them differently now, I believe we won't do them differently in the future. It was during the Second World War, 1942, the Beveridge Report, 1944, the Bretton Woods Conference, for example. It was during the war, not after it, despite the enormous distractions of fighting battles on five fronts, of an existential risk to people, including in the UK with the bombs dropping on the buildings where they were thinking about these issues. The UK was at risk of being invaded by the Germans. And yet there was the capacity to envisage and create a new world. And that in my view is what we need to be doing now. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. That was wonderful. I was just making sure that I was unmuted. I wasn't sure, typical mistake. Lots of food for thought there. Uh, let me let me begin with um, with a question that I hope will not sound skeptical, but I just like to draw a, a, a sort of a, a contrast. Your book has a bit of an apocalyptic tone in the sense that one cursory reading of the book might say, well, it seems as though we were doing everything wrong. The planet was getting uh, worse. Now we've got the pandemic, which made things even you know, more dramatic. We need to change from the bottom. It, we really have to alter the course. An alternative interpretation might say, you know, if I produce, say, Steven Pinker, we wheeled him in from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Someone like Pinker might say, every indication of human development has been getting better over the last half century or so. Um, even inequality, which is the one thing that many people understandably uh, fret about, uh, within country inequality in the US and the UK has gotten much worse, but worldwide inequality across countries has gotten much less bad, 
within country inequality in some portions of the region, like Latin America, in fact, has improved slightly. And, you know, I don't want to get into the, into the weeds, but one could argue that, yes, the pandemic has been terrible. Clearly, many countries have mishandled the pandemic and a lot of needless suffering has been inflicted on people. I will not certainly take issue with that. But maybe a reset is not necessarily uh, what is called for. Maybe the world was broadly going into the right direction. A, a pinker might argue. We just need to get one or two things straight. Clearly, we were not prepared for pandemics, so maybe we were discounting the uh, risk of low probability but very nasty events like a pandemic. Uh, so we need to be more resilient. We need to be more prepared. We need better health systems. Uh, but this is not tantamount to a broad reorientation of where the world was headed. Would Pinker be right or would Pinker be wrong? Well, I, I've, I've debated this with, with, um, with Stephen. Uh, we had a great debate, which, which I think must be on the Oxford Market School website. Um, I, I don't think uh, I'm, you know, the, I, I've stressed, and I, I hope that came through in the book, that I celebrate the progress that's been made. And, you know, the reason I believe in globalization, I believe in these flows, is because I believe there's never been a period of more rapid progress. And pre another book I've written is The Age of Discovery. I, I've argued we're living in a new renaissance of discovery for all sorts of positive, positive reasons. Um, but we shouldn't allow this success to blind our... Uh, worries or to overwhelm our worries. And even if I'm wrong, and I absolutely hope I'm wrong, um, wouldn't want another pandemic or financial crisis or, you know, climate change to escalate. Um, normal risk avoiding strategies is to prepare and stop negative things happening, whether it's a road accident and what we invest in road safety or stopping our houses burned down and what we invest in fire and, and other safety and insurance. Um, if we allocated against the risk, even if you, you know, even if it's a 10% risk of really dramatic things, we should be investing much, much, much more resources and changing our ways to accommodate it. As long as we don't kill the goose that creates the wealth which is, I think, where, you, where, where you're heading with your, with your question. Um, so so let, me, let, me, let me stop you there and, and try to steer the conversation in the following direction. So one, one thing that pretty much most people, I guess, I was going to say everybody, but everybody's too, too big a category, a lot of people would agree uh, with is that clearly we were caught uh, unaware, unprepared, ill-prepared. So we need to do more in, in, in terms of health systems, um, uh, vaccine delivery, health infrastructure. So that's a clear priority. For people who are listening in, and we've got 115 pe people in lots of different parts of the world who may have not had a chance to look at the book yet, uh, give us your top three in addition to that one. You know, if, if, if we appoint uh, Ian Golden, benevolent dictator for a week, of planet Earth, what are the top three things that you should say are big, big priorities? Okay. Well, I mean, just to stress the importance of the pandemic one, uh, the proportions are something like a pandemic is a thousand to 10,000 times more likely to kill us than a military conflict. And I go through this in the book. Right. And we devote 
10,000 to 100,000 times more money to military preparedness. So this is indicative of a failure to match how we allocate resources, political capital, global cooperation to what's going to, what the threats are and the thing. And there's all sorts of reasons for that, including military lobbying and many others. So pandemic, but it's not just a little bit more attention to pandemics. Mm -hmm. It's a big, big swing, including absolutely essential global cooperation through, world, through, I believe, the WHO. What does that mean? That means you have to cooperate with China. Okay. So, you know, absolutely, you can't solve any global problem if you're having rising political tensions between the US and China. So I would say global governance, but particularly global cooperation. Now, we can agree to disagree with China on many things, right. human rights, etc. But unless we work with them on climate change, on pandemics, on systemic risk in other areas, we cannot manage global systemic risk. So I would put cooperation and the international system. I think development has been, you know, I don't think that's heading in the right direction, Andreas. Uh, the UK has cut its budget by a third. OECD countries, because aid is a share of the size of the GNI in 2020, virtually all the aid budgets went down. The IMF has the firepower to support countries, but, you know, I had a great d- d- discussion with Christina Georgieva, the, the head of that, a couple of weeks ago. They can't get the money out the door. Countries can't draw down fund money because of the credit rating agencies. So there's a massive crisis of development and a crisis of development finance. Many more people will die of starvation than will die of COVID-19. And 125 million people, the World Bank estimates, have been pushed into dire poverty because of COVID-19. This isn't like the thing is on course and was on course. The SDGs have been totally derailed. Uh, Those of us that believe in the SDGs, that needs to be a top global priority. And then I think there's a whole series of questions, and it's now being addressed through the OECD, um, regarding tax arbitrage, evasion of tax, and so on. I, I think that's right. One of the reasons why governments have been less effective at redistribution and at managing crises is because their resource base has been undermined by a race to the bottom. So ending that race to the bottom, whatever it is, on corporate tax, on personal income tax, closing tax havens, that I believe is a top priority. I've given you three. <laughs> those, are, those are good ones. I don't find myself disagreeing uh, with, with any one of them. Um, let me be, just dig a little deeper maybe on number two, which happens to be my sort of my day job about from being a dean is, you know, thinking about issues of international finance. I agree with your main point that clearly international institutions and the global community came up very, very short this time around in that uh, financing available to emerging and developing countries was, you know, a fraction of what it should have been. Uh, the, The numbers I have in my head is at the beginning of the pandemic, the fund said, uh, developing countries are going to need two trillion. Uh, the fund said we have firepower of up to one trillion, and depending how you do the counting, the fund uh, lent out for pandemic-related purposes less than two hundred billion. So the fund uh, put on the table uh, less than one tenth of what the fund itself estimated at the very beginning would be needed. Now, again, if we wheeled in a, a fund official, uh, they would say, "Look, the money is there." Countries are not borrowing. Um, so why is it that countries are not borrowing? You, 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 you seem to 
to hint, maybe not to hint, you said it, but I'd like you to elaborate on it, that maybe the issue is that there's too much debt on the table already and the rating agencies are vigilant or maybe a little paranoid. So perhaps we need to look at non-debt creating flows. What, what sorts of reforms do you have in mind in that, in that regard? Yeah, I think that's right. And I've, I've been you know, exploring that. And again, it's discussed in, in, in Rescue. The, this is a totally different environment to the, to the previous crises and even from the financial crisis, but certainly from the 1990s and earlier crises in the diversity of funding sources for developing countries, particularly the rise of China as a funding source, um, private banking, debt, you know, a great achievement for many countries has been to be able to go into the capital markets. Um, and there's, there's also sizable amounts of bilateral lending from others. That means that, um, that the fund and the bank have become much less significant. Uh, and it also means that countries, particularly middle-income countries, are absolutely paranoid about anything that's going to undermine their credit rating agency. I think the credit rating agencies have made a massive mistake by saying they're going to downgrade countries that get um, more debt, because actually that's the pathway for the countries to grow. I don't think we can get a resolution of this. Uh, and there are very high prior levels of debt, as the fund has pointed out in countries. Uh, but I don't think we can get a, a resolution without another debt write-off or restructuring of a very significant type. But again, unlike previous crises, because the debt's from a more diverse set of people, you can't just speak to the Citibank and a couple of other people and come up with a restructuring plan. Um, the Chinese would need to be part of that. And there is a worry that there's a back door, that you give your right of debt from one side and it gets used to repay others, uh, which, which um, no one wants to happen. <laughs> no one certainly not those that are writing it off. Um, so it's complicated, but it can be done. Uh, and certainly should be done. And my own feeling is very much in contrast to the financial crisis where George W. Bush called the, the heads of state at the G7, G20 level, Gordon Brown followed up. Um, there was a massive, massive focus on this. Now it's perfunctory. I mean, what the G7 and the G20 are doing on this is absolutely perfunctory, even compared to the financial crisis. And this is, you know, much, much more serious. One other number I'd throw out, you throw out the two, two trillion. The other number to throw out is, of course, the 17 trillion, which is how much the rich countries have now found for themselves um, uh, and gone to deficits of 10 to 20 percent. Um, so, yeah, just just if I may come back on your on your first question. Um, do we have to do things very differently? I'm not suggesting we do things in all dimensions very differently, but I do believe that unless there's a fundamental understanding of the risks that spread through globalization, it will choke itself off um, through protectionism, through other means. And that requires, uh, for those of us that believe in trade and in investment, in migration, in the flow of ideas, uh, it believes an active effort which is missing uh, within countries and between countries. And I think that is, you know, substantially different. I do think that business as usual will not give us the gains. And we've already seen it in productivity, but we'll see it in other dimensions. Uh, we will not get the gains out of business as usual. It brought a lot of progress in the post, in the period after 1990. But that progress will not be repeated. We see the number of countries in the world becoming a-liberal, for example. We see the slow, the stagnant growth, uh, and we see rising inequality. And I know that's a debatable issue, uh, but these things have to be addressed. The rise of populism, my view, is also a result of 
those forces, increasing risk. There's no accident that Trump came into power after the financial crisis. Across Europe, we had the rise of populism. In your country, um, you're seeing it as well. I don't think it's an accident. You don't get stable democracies out of a, a growing instability in societies. Let me hang the hat of my next question, and maybe it will be the last, and then we'll go to the audience precisely on the last point. Populism, politics, the backlash against globalization. You're absolutely right, I think. Uh, my view would, would be very much yours, namely that uh, the G20 today is a pale uh, version and a weak version of what the G20 did, say, under Gordon Brown's leadership and the immediate aftermath of, of Lehman Brothers, uh, where not only was the world mobilized, there was money on the table. By contrast, if you look at the G20 uh, last year, uh, the big idea was an issue of SDRs. It didn't happen. The US and China were both against it. Um, the G20 mildly calls for the private sector to do a debt write-down. The private sector said, well, we have no time for that. The G20 acquiesced. Um, so if I connect that set of facts with the last set of facts you pointed to, namely populism, it's not so difficult to draw a link between one and the other. Countries have turned inward. The UK itself, as you mentioned, is cutting aid budgets because uh, of domestic politics and because of domestic political priorities. Many countries in the world, uh, in you know, some have gone populist outright. I think of Turkey, I think of Poland, Hungary, India, Israel, the Philippines, Brazil, Mexico. And in typically well-behaved Western European countries, you know, the balance of power is different. Um, all kinds of politicians are very scared of coming across as more concerned with the welfare of people far away in the other corner of the world than they are about, you know, the, the guy in the corner shop. And as a result, um, the political climate today is drastically different from the political climate uh, of 2010, say. So I sometimes worry, but I'd like your, your views and maybe your, your optimism on this, that you know, we, we, we globally minded people who sit on commissions and write reports could, uh, could do a lot more of that and we could write very uh, eloquent reports calling for the world to do this, that and the other. But the politicians are thinking, oh my God, not one more report, I've got to win an election and the report will not win me that election. So suppose we agree on the, on the technical or on the you know, humane case for change. How do we make that case to the politicians? What, how do we make sure that the Boris Johnsons of the world are actually listening? Yeah, <laughs> you, 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 you were in government and I was sort of in government and we, and we know um, that, that, that that's obviously um, the question. We know what to do, we just don't know how to do it, um, as, as has been famously said. Right. We, we need, we need, the actual saying is we know what we need to do, we just don't know how to win an election after we do well, that's it. That's right, yeah. <laughs> maybe, it was, maybe it was Juncker that said that. Yeah, um, I, I think yeah. so, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, it's the, this is the, the reason why I spent quite a lot of time in the book thinking about uh, the experience of Churchill. And uh, how was it that, well, firstly, how did they manage while they were fighting this war, sort of worried about whether the next bomb would drop on their heads? Yeah. Um, how did they, and you could, how did, how did they create yeah. a welfare state, 
the United Nations, the Bretton Woods. Sure. And, and one of the reasons was they relied quite heavily on experts like Keynes. Um, but, but and they, like Beveridge, who happened to be at the LSE, of course. And, and like <laughs> exactly, exactly yeah. so. Um, there was, but, but then the, 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 the more difficult uh, question to answer is your question, which is, and these hugely ambitious things then had to get politically implemented. Now, my own view there's basically two, two sorts of things. One is they'd been through two wars. They'd been through the first, a lot of these people had been through the First World War as well. And the First World War was meant to be the war to end all wars. And then you had the cycle of roaring 20s, like we're going to have again, the Great Depression, rise of fascism and so on. I think there was a, I think that focused people's minds that actually, unless they did something very different, this was a cycle that could repeat itself. And there was a huge scarring from the First World War uh, that was in people's consciousness. And, and the Second World War was, you know, existential, uh, and many more people died from it uh, than, in the, than in the First World War. So the question now in the pandemic is, is this pandemic big enough? The financial crisis, I don't think, was big enough to change finance. Um, and I think it is big enough. I, 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 and we've had other pandemics. I mean, not here maybe, but certainly if you live in, in East Asia, the, you know, the reason you wear a mask and bow is because you don't want to shake people's hands because you've had other pandemics. Um, so I think, I think there's a recognition that this will happen again and will happen again and could be worse. Um, the second is, is the politics. How is it that, um, that Churchill got deposed? I mean, how, who was this guy, Attlee, that no one had heard of? Uh, that took the war hero off his pedestal. Um, and, and that, I think, does... It, and the reason that happened was because so many people suffered. Because these sold, parents of soldiers that had died, family, friends, the soldiers that had come back from the war basically said, don't ever put anyone through this again. We, we have to do things differently. You promised us a better world. Now we want it. And they got it. They got free education. They got housing, almost full employment, and, um, and many other things to boot with that. And we have to remember, although it's been trashed by, by the new literature, that, that the 30 years that followed that, with, with marginal tax, rate, tax rates of 70% in the U.S. and in Europe, uh, we, you know, is, is still known by economic historians as the golden age of capitalism, or in France, the, the 30 glorious, the 30 glorious years. This was not some sort of socialist project that was derailing capitalism. It created the foundations of the capitalism we have today with a very, very strong state. And, and my view is that that's the political answer, is that actually the problem uh, is going to come back to these populists. We've seen it with Trump. He lost the election. Of course, he got 10 million more votes, but that wasn't enough. Um, I think we're going to see it with Bolsonaro. Uh, I think we. I think um, these populists are pushing the boundary. I think Modi's uh, severely undermined by his response, um, and we can. You know, the UK is a sort of special case because, <laughs> in a way, but we can talk about it at great length. How is it that this is all reinforced, Boris? But yeah. I, what Churchill teaches me me and and boris the student of, of churchill is you think you're a hero one day and the next day you lose power 
One more question on politics, and then I promise to people in the audience we will open it up. But this is fun. Um, just let's stay with the subject of politics for, for one minute. And I think your, your analogy with the UK 1945 is very apropos, but maybe my reading of the contrast between then and now is a bit less optimistic than yours in, one, in the following dimension. Britain came out of the war wounded with a you know, hundreds of thousands of dead with the economy in tatters, but with a very much strengthened sense of national identity and common purpose, to some extent because the war had helped not quite erase, but maybe debilitate class barriers. You know, the, the posh kid from Oxford and the working class kid from, from the north of England had fought together in the same platoon. Uh, private companies have, uh, you know, had collaborated to the war efforts and, you know, firms that were making luxury goods were suddenly making parts for Spitfires. Um, you know, Labour and, and the Tories had collaborated in government in, the, in, 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 in leading Britain through, through the war. And of course, you know, nothing unites like victory, right? Uh, and Britain had, had emerged victorious against the Nazis. So you can, you can suffer a great deal, but come out more united. On the other hand, if I look at, say, 2010, um, you know, as a macroeconomist, you know, I think maybe you disagree, but I think, you know, Obama and Larry Summers and company, you know, cleaned up the mess reasonably well. Maybe they didn't get the politics right, but they got the economics mostly right. And they were quite bold. You know, they subsidized GM and Ford and Chrysler and put lots of money into uh, bailouts. And all. They did all kinds of things that the Republicans hated. But the political reading of that crisis was um, Wall Street got a bailout, Main Street uh, got nothing. I lost my home. I lost my job. So technically, maybe they did right, but politically, they did terribly. So Will this crisis be like 1945 or will it be like 2010? If it is like 2010 and people come out of the crisis feeling, well, you know, my neighbor got the vaccine, I didn't. My neighbor got the furlough, I didn't. Isn't that uh, the perfect breeding ground for more populism as opposed to less populism? Um, I think you're certainly right about the financial crisis. I mean, I really do believe that we wouldn't have had Trump in the White House. We wouldn't have Brexit in Britain. Um, if it hadn't been for the financial crisis. It was a massive divider. Uh, and, you know, it, it was really, I don't, now wages for a whole group of population are still lower than they were in 2009. I mean, it, it's, it's been devastating. Uh, other things were happening too that came to a head. Um, you know, the devastation that the Midwest in the US has suffered. And that's where the heartland of, of Trump support was, the big swing. Uh, is um, it's also to do with future of work, globalization, robotics, uh, offshoring, etc. Um, yes, I think this this pandemic, I certainly argue in rescue, uh, has increased inequalities within countries and between them. Uh, to the extent that uh, increasing inequalities and increasing life chances, I mean, huge ranges in 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 mortality rates between different places, between different towns, between different groups, between different classes of workers, to the extent that that differential overwhelms the common sense of solidarity that we're all in this together, uh, 
it, I think populism can rise. And we're going to see still unwinding this, you know, the excess deaths, the things that the countries that have had very high levels of excess death all have in common populism. Right. UK, yeah. US, yeah. there's nothing else that they have in common. Yeah. Some of them are very rich and some of them are very poor. Some of them have a huge science base. Others have no science. But what they all have in common is people not listening in the top uh, and not listening quickly, not only to their local science, because some countries like Vietnam don't um, have local science or Mongolia or some countries that done badly that are small, uh, but not listening to the World Health Organization, uh, which gave good advice. And those that followed it that had no science did much better than the UK and the US. Right. So if, if there's going to be a pushback, you know, one, one scenario is that people say, yeah, we're not in this together and you, you vote for extremes. And that's exactly what happened after the financial crisis, particularly amongst young people who did particularly badly. You see the voting patterns in Europe um, of young people swung the fastest. But if the response is actually these populist politicians are dangerous for us, um, if that is internalized, and I think people were seeing this in the US with Trump, I think it'll be a big countervailing force. Uh, against it. So the jury's out and it's part of the reason to write a book and make the arguments against these populists. <laughs> Absolutely. If if people voted on the basis of performance alone, the populists should all be punished at the polls. Problem is, uh, maybe people don't vote on the basis of fact yeah. alone. Um, you know, it's amazing how far you can get, you know, Trump got seven votes by, by saying, oh, it's the Chinese that we have to blame for the crisis, right? Yeah, and also huge payouts. I mean, when you, when, you know, the UK, the furlough scheme and the, the supporting of companies and in the US, $6 trillion of payout buys you a lot of vote. Yeah. Um, right. So it, it could take some time to unwind. As a friend of mine likes to say, Poor countries have done whatever they could afford. Rich countries have done whatever it takes, right? Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, this has been fun, but I'm now going to be a bit more disciplined and turn it over to uh, the audience. We have quite a few questions. Uh, first one is from Kevin Ryan. Um, and he says, uh, what new kinds of acceleration and globalization do you think will happen? And what effects will that, you know, um, have politically? Uh, are, are, are you thinking, uh, Ian, that... Um, that we know backlash against globalization, but rather bits of it at least will accelerate or, or maybe not? Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people talked about deglobalization. I think that's, that's really nonsense. Uh, many aspects have accelerated dramatically. This, this webinar is one aspect. Digital traffic is, you know, three, three four times what it was in 2019 across uh, borders. Uh, we're seeing that um, science collaboration and science globalization has thankfully uh, taken off the, the genomics on uh, the virus, but now the vaccine, the discovery, uh, and so on. Investment flows, I think, are going to uh, become extremely robust, and partly because they have to be. We talked about bailouts of, of poor countries, but also private flows. There's going to be a repricing of assets and countries, a lot of mergers and acquisitions. I see massive increase in financial flows. The trade flows have been extraordinarily robust. When you look at container prices across um, the Atlantic, not across the Atlantic, the Asian routes, Europe, Asia, uh, US, Asia. In fact, the, one of the strange things that happened during the end of the Trump presidency, despite all the, the sort of wanting to say we're not going to deal with China, is that the trade peaked 
uh, between, between the US and China. And also US foreign investment in China peaked. Uh, and that's partly because the Chinese were smart and opened up their financial services uh, for, for Chinese investment. So many of these flows are not going to, to the extent that there is a de-globalization or changing in the nature of value chains and supply chains, that's to do with a, a trend that's been accelerated, like so many other things uh, that the pandemic has done is a great accelerator. Uh, and that's in the future of work, automation, robotics, AI, machine learning. So we will see an acceleration of things like diminishing of offshoring because basically it goes into the cloud. You don't have a digital, you don't have a people filling in forms in Bangalore for a bank or for an insurance company, for a law firm. That's all now going into digital cloud. And that was happening. It's accelerating. It will happen with call centers as well, which is a massive employment source. And it's going to happen in manufacturing. And then the other trends, of course, customization and immediacy. Everyone's used to now ordering online and getting a delivery the same day or the next day. Well, you don't do that in a container from the other side of the world. Um, and that's pushing supply chains back. But these things were happening and have been accelerated. So some aspects are diminishing. The piece I really hope accelerates is the political piece, you know. What, what's, what, what's really been deglobalizing is politics, countries becoming more nationalist, giving less investment to international institutions. We talked about less finance for developing countries, less aid. That's the piece that, that's most worrying in globalization is the failure of global politics. On that note, we have a question from Raghunandan Rotia who's worried about tensions between the US and China and about uh, developing countries being the innocent bystanders. So the question is, do you think that countries in the so-called third world could do something to minimize these tensions and avoid being caught in the crossfire? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a big question when the elephants uh, mm -hmm. are fighting uh, smaller and animals. Stomping around, right. Uh, and, um, and, I, and there's a huge danger. Uh, Where, where countries have to take sides, you know, they might want why why equipment because it's cheaper and effective, and they're told they can't have it, uh, whatever. If they want uh, other things from the U.S., so this is a big, big challenge. It's one of the, I think, the biggest threats to the world trading system and investment system that we go back to basically an old, a new Cold War like we had until 1990. Uh, where the world was divided into Russian and, and U.S. spheres of influence. Right. The danger is we get into that sort of world in the China-U.S. Uh, spheres. And for Europe particularly, and for developing countries, uh, that's very, very much a, a, a bad outcome. So I think everything needs to be done against it. There's no global problem that can be solved without the two countries cooperating. Of course, we go back to Andreas's uh, political question. It might be politically convenient uh, in the US to have a, an enemy out there. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and that's no doubt one of the reasons it's perpetuated from the uh, Trump to the Biden administration. Mm -hmm. So I think it's very important that developing countries assert their independence, assert that they're not prepared to take sides in this, that they should be, you know, my hope is that they criticize China for some of the human rights abuses Uh, while still recognizing it as a key source of investment, of trade, of global cooperation. And that's a tricky balance to strike, but I think it's doable. I would add to your shopping list vis-a-vis -vis China. Uh, you mentioned earlier that China is a big source of capital nowadays, and that's absolutely true. You know, 
there's very little transparency attached to that capital. We know that countries like Argentina borrowed a lot from China. The world does not know how much and under what terms. And, uh, you know, in that regard, I think China has... Yeah. Well, they need to be brought into the Paris Club and they need to be brought into exactly. OECD DAC and, and all of those processes. Exactly. But, you know, it takes two to tango. They also have to want to join. <laughs> all right. Um, let's move on here. Neil Mortimer from Loughborough University says, um, I work on experimentation in policy design. Do you think, do you hope that the pandemic will facilitate a new way of policymaking that is more inclusive, more discussion-based, and where there's more willing to experiment before settling on solutions? I certainly hope so. And there's some sign of it in some areas. I mean, it's very interesting to see what the European Union presidency is doing uh, in the design of its green new uh, facilities. Uh, in terms of not only the inclusive sort of consultation, but also interdisciplinarity, which is another thing I'm extremely keen on. And I think what governments have learned is that if you only have, say, medical scientists or pandemic specialists in the room, you're not going to design a policy uh, about it because these are all about trade-offs between economics and, uh, and, and public health, uh, different groups. And so that listening to different voices uh, including, of course, the voices that talk about the ethics of, of these trade-offs, uh, becomes has been made to, to be very significant, and I think that can be sustained. Uh, at the same time, uh, there have been dramatic cuts, and that also is something that worries me, dramatic cuts to the arts. Uh, there have been dramatic cuts to migration, uh, which is a source of stimulus and external uh, influence and creativity, and cuts to non scientific, particularly non-medical research areas. And that, that's worrying for those of us that believe uh, that, it, that you need this broad base of knowledge in order to tackle global problems uh, and take it forward and to have a, a proper conversation. So I think there are different tendencies. And I think those of us that care about it need to be very, very active in, in, in safeguarding and advancing the interests uh, of this uh, conversation. We have about six more minutes, um, lots of questions out here. Let me see if I can do justice to one or two more. Um, Guy Taylor um, says, you know, you write about, you know, the world coming together uh, and channeling people's aspirations, but how do we get the G20 to agree to do more, to build back better and to leave no one behind? I guess this takes us back to our earlier conversation. You know, the G20 is not quite what it used to be. Uh, is that um, a done deal or can the G20 gain a little, a little muscle again? Well, the G20, like all these Gs, are, are sort of a, a legacy of history. Yeah. They, they came into existence at a certain time for a certain purpose, G20 around the financial crisis, and they get sort of fixed. Uh, as problem solvers. But my own view is that we need much more flexible constellations of actors to solve world problems. And who those actors are really needs to depend on what the problem is. We don't want to hit every problem with, you know, every, every, with a hammer, the same hammer. 
And, and it's that failure to create the constituencies and coalitions that we need. And many times they won't necessarily just be governments. They could be big cities. They could be big companies. They could be civil rights groups. It depends what the issue is that you're tackling, that you need to have a pandemic. I mentioned being exceptional because of this global reach, but clearly others need to be part of that, like pharmaceutical companies. But when you take most other challenges we face, you know, climate, so we have something like a dozen countries accounting for 85% of global emissions. Uh, New York State accounting for more emissions than the whole of sub-Saharan Africa. So why do you need 202 countries in every discussion? Uh, you need the legitimacy, but maybe if you had Bangladesh representing the affected countries, uh, it, that would make it legitimate. It's going to be largely you know, hit terribly by climate change for all sorts of reasons. And the same in finance, you know, it's a, a relatively small group of countries account for global financial stability. So my hope is that as we think about problem solving, we don't kick everything up to the UN, to the G20, G7, whatever. These are not good institutions to solve problems, that we should rather build widening circles. Get four or five key countries together mm -hmm. with four or five key companies, with four or five key cities, and you can solve most you can begin to solve many problems and then build widening circles of co coherence and, of course, apply the subsidiarity principle that whatever can be resolved at a local level or a national level or a company level should be solved at that problem. You really only want to kick things up when you can't solve them anymore at the level you're operating. That applies to global public goods. But even global public goods don't require the whole globe. And in a sense, the word global governance is its own worst enemy. Because it's not really global governance you're looking for, it's global solutions you're looking for. And that often requires much less than uh, everyone globally being part of it. I think that last point is absolutely key. Um, it is almost a Pavlovian reflex nowadays. We have a problem and we call for a global solution. And you're absolutely right. You know, 80 or 90% of these solutions still are up to local or national policy. And of course, that means that in the end, they are also dependent or on local or national politics. One last uh, issue that we have not um, spent a lot of time on today, but it's clearly in your book, uh, and which is um, political, like every other thing that matters, uh, climate change. Um, one reason to be pessimistic about the world before the pandemic, of course, is that um, as you point out, uh, a lot of emissions still come from the U.S. and the U.S. and the Trump had walked away from the climate change agreements and lots of other global efforts. And, you know, this is one area where you're absolutely right. Maybe not every last country of the 200 and some needs to come in, but the big ones do have to come in. Um, Post-election, um, post even though Donald Trump got 74 million votes, Joe Biden seems to be doing very differently. And one area where he is doing things very differently is climate change. Um, might this be one of the areas where, in fact, the world does come to the rescue or, or old Joe comes to the rescue? Well, the U.S. can't do it on its own. China has almost doubled the emissions now. Uh, we have this problem of stocks and flows, but it's the flow that matters in terms of the change. So the U.S., very important. What Biden's doing is fantastic. Uh, but the rest of the world and China is Europe key players, absolutely. But we need to be very, very vigilant at the moment because big stimulus packages can be disastrous. 
And so this is a crucial moment, and that's the point I really make um, in the book, in ensuring that the new money that's being generated goes into new jobs with new energy. If I could wheel in one last person who's not in the room, you know, if Nick Stern of, of, of the LSE were here, that is a point that he would make very, very eloquently, right? It matters a lot how we spend the money. Um, and he's got know. a great new report that the gra his Grantham Institute has. Absolutely. Uh, uh, absolutely. And Nick has been very active in all the discussions, you know, leading up to Carbus Bay to the G7, et cetera. Um, you know, we macroeconomists decide, you know, on the amount, but exactly how that, uh, that money is spent makes a very, very big difference indeed. I'm looking at the clock and it is 2.59 and a half. We are uh, almost there, um, but we're very, very grateful to uh, Professor Ian Golden from the Oxford Martin School for having brought his new book to us today. Um, Many, many thanks, Ian. As usual, this has been a fun conversation, lots of food for thought, uh, lots of issues that uh, I'm sure we will carry on discussing in the days, weeks, months, and years to come. So thank you, Ian. Thank you to everybody who joined us today. And uh, I'll see you soon again in another book launch, another global conversation here at the LSE. Good afternoon. Bye -bye. Thank you so much, Andres.